This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohn from the City University of New York, Queens College. I'm Leslie Hankson from Georgetown University. I'm Jean Beeman from Purdue University. Our guest is Margaret Hagerman from Mississippi State. Today, Margaret Hagerman on White Kids. Our discussion was recorded on March 27, 2019. We're here with Margaret Hagerman from Mississippi State. Margaret recently published White Kids Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America with NYU Press. It's a book that looks at how affluent white youth understand things like privilege, inequality, and police violence. And she looks at where these views come from and how this dynamic serves to reproduce racism and racial inequality. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for joining us, Margaret. Thank you for inviting me. So first, tell us, what moved you to uh, do the research that led to white kids? Can you give us sort of the backstory? Sure. Um, you know, it's it's hard to actually pinpoint what, you know, when I thought to do this project. But, um, you know, I've always been interested in understanding how it is that people in positions of privilege sort of understand that position and the, the ways that they understand inequality when they when they themselves directly benefit from it. And so I think as a, you know, sort of a combination of growing up in an affluent you know, suburb of Boston and, and noticing things myself as a child when I left my community and traveled literally across a lake and went to a community that looked a lot differently than mine racially and, and you know, economically was clearly very different. So I think those early questions myself, but then also taking sociology classes in, in college, honestly, um, and thinking more about sort of the social reproduction of inequality and, and also the social reproduction of ideology and ideologies that uphold this, you know, racist and unequal system. So, uh, yeah, so I guess it's sort of a combination of different things. And then um, I had the privilege of working with Amanda Lewis in graduate school, and she really helped me um, develop this project. And, um, yeah, so that's sort of the story. And so tell us about your empirical study. Like, who were your subjects? How did you find them? And, and what were you looking for? How did you get data from them? So this study focuses on 30 families who identify as white and then who I identified as being affluent. And so I, these are families who have advanced degrees, the parents, typically both parents. Um, they are families that have single family homes that are very valuable uh, to get a measure of wealth. And then there are also families that have very, um, you know, work in occupations that are very prestigious. And so I spent time, these, these were families that had children in middle schools. So they are between the ages of like 10 to 13. And um, I spent two years in this community. I moved to this community. I was not from there. And I just immersed myself in the everyday lives of these families and tried to understand how it is these young people come to understand racism, privilege, and equality. Um, the project included participant observation with these families in their everyday lives. I did some childcare uh, babysitting to, to yeah. club, um, where awesome. I, you know, drove kids soccer practice, picked them up after school. And so those kinds of spaces were really important because that's where a lot of this racial learning happens. Um, and then I also conducted interviews with the parents and then child centered interviews with the kids themselves. Um, so that was the that was the method. And then in terms of recruiting the families, um, I, I used a snowball sample. I started with different nodes so that I could access different parts of this community. Um, I did spend a few months, you know, as most ethnographers do, just getting lay of the land to figure out different places in this community where these white affluent families sort of set up their kids' lives, you know, in terms of neighborhoods and schools and so forth. So 
yeah, that, I think it, that, that gives you like an overview. Of the That's movie. amazing. For first of all, genius to be watching them. That's so clever. <laughs> Uh, because you see so much if you've ever done childcare, like you just you you get such access right totally so clever so wait and and now let's get down to the meat of it how do families transmit their views of uh, privilege and race in a way that reproduces inequality so a lot of people think that children learn about race through what, what people say what adults say so for example, I keep it, I have a whole file on my computer of like parenting blogs and op-eds and things that are written after a racist hate crime. And often you'll see the headline will say something like why white parents need to talk to their kids about racism, you know, talk to your kids, talk, talk, talk. And while I think that it's important to talk to kids about race um, and particularly white kids about race and in the context of my book, um, I also think that kids are learning about race from all different parts of their lives. The kids are interpreting the social world around them. So the choices that parents make about where to send their kids to school, the neighborhoods to live in, the peers to, you know, sort of coordinate, you know, because parents play a big role in shaping who their kids are friends with, right? Mm -hmm. um, extracurricular activities, travel, all of these different things, volunteering, you know, these different choices that parents make, I argue, set up a racial context of for, of childhood and these and kids are living in the world and you know they're interpreting their social environment and drawing really important lessons and messages from from that environment um and you know this work i, I just want to say this work is is in line with some some important work erin winkler has done um, some some really great research she has a book called learning race learning place that looks at african-american kids living in detroit and she makes a similar argument about how kids are you know, living in an environment and they're interpreting messages on their own. Um, it's not just about what parents say. So I think that's one of the major findings. Yeah, I'd also add like Carolyn Tyson's work, yeah. you know, Integration Interrupted, yeah. right? Yeah. How, I mean, kids spend so much time every day, like right. in school and the way in which schooling is set up, like the organizational properties of the school and the culture of the school, I'm sure, I, I mean, I can see it with my own children, like play a huge role in how, particularly if parents don't talk to their kids early on about what race is, right, and yeah. what race isn't. Um, yeah, they learn quite a bit um, about what they, how they should interpret difference um, from the way in which school is set up. Absolutely, and I found too that they, they learn about how to interpret difference and also how to make sense of themselves, right, in their own position in, in, in our society. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I had kids that go to the, that were going to a private school that were telling me that they were situated to be leaders, that they were more special, they were smarter, that they were better than their peers that went to the public school. And these are schools that are almost exclusively white. And so what, what does that mean about their, you know, they're noticing these patterns? Well, everyone who goes to my school looks like me is position to be a leader, you know, that's teaching them something about their own position in the world, which I think is important too. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting. So it, am I understanding this correctly? The, so there are well-meaning parents who try to tell their children in the abstract, oh, we should strive for inclusivity and integration and all of that. And then they scurry off to their racially segregated neighborhoods and put their kids in schools with no black people. And their actions are what are uh, overpowering sort of the their words, basically. Yeah. And I think, you know, you've described one type of white parent in my book. Um, I have three different 
sort of types that I, that I sort of um, talk about. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. You can say, you know, you have these abstract values of fairness and equality and equal opportunity. But then when you try to, you know, like I mentioned earlier in, in the context of that cheating scandal, when you put, you know, these personal interests of securing the best for your own kid ahead of everything else, then it doesn't really matter what you say, you know? Um, can you tell us, um, can you talk a little bit more about the typology? Yeah, totally. Mm. So what I found, and this is the importance of spending those first couple of months trying to understand this community, I found that there were three, there's probably more than three, but I found that there were three different neighborhoods, and it really did sort of map onto neighborhoods um, in this metropolitan area. So this includes a suburban area as well. Um, the first was, is, I call it Sheridan, and this community I would I just describe as really embracing colorblind ideology through and through. I mean, these are people who would tell you, oh, you can talk to my kid, but they probably won't have anything to say because they don't even they don't even see race, they don't even know what race is, you know, that kind of thing. Uh -huh. um, of course, you spend like five minutes with these kids, and they have all kinds of ideas about race. Um, so that's the first group, and so those families really, you know, their schools are exclusively white, their neighborhood, you know, they're they're it's like a white bubble basically. Um, um, these parents also tended to lean more conservatively. I was not looking at political segregation or anything like that, but it emerged from the data. So that's the first group. The second group was sort of, um, I, I call it Wheaton Hills. This is a community where the parents um, really embrace sort of, you know, what we think about in sociology as, you know, diversity discourse, you know, oh, I care about diversity, but this is the community that spends a lot of um resources sending their kids to private schools. And so they say that they care a lot about this stuff, but then they're they're really opting for the private schools. I think this is really kind of what Joe had described, you know, initially, this death of that kind of parent. Um, and then the third group were from a community that I call Evergreen. And these are people who tell you, I am anti-racist, I'm racially progressive, you know, I send my kids to public school, I, I participate in racial justice activism. And yet, um, what I found was that even though these parents, in many ways, you know, through their, through their words, and sometimes their, their actions, try to challenge racial inequality, they also reproduce the very things they say they, they're trying to challenge. So for example, they might send their kids to a public school, but that school has like massive tracking, you know, and, and they advocate to get their kids the best teacher. They use their networks and their resources to make sure that their kid, you know, is getting the most um, resources out of that school. Um, so yes, yeah, so that kind of gives a sense. I mean, obviously I can blab on and on about that, but um, those were the three different kinds of white families that I was looking at. You know, there's an interesting tension there for uh, a, a white parent, though, right? Because if it, the way it seems framed, it's that uh, the the third option, uh, you want to advocate for your child, right? It's a natural inclination, but even the act of advocating in uh, an integrated community, you're saying, still reinforces the uh, these inequalities. Yeah, I mean, like the research of Lynn Posey Maddox is really powerful in looking at how white parents tend to in integrated spaces dominate like the PTA, right? Like, mm -hmm. like how they, they, even in spaces where you, you know, they can look demographically, oh, it's integrated, but, but who's validated, who's valued, you know, who is actually heard and who controls that space. And so, yeah, I mean, I would push back on the notion that it's a natural inclination to want the best for your kid. I think there are lots of other ways to think about valuing children. You know, I don't think that it has to be just valuing your kid. I think that there are many examples that we could think of of times when people value lots of more children, you know, like maybe all the children. So um, yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to challenge that notion of what we, 
what we say, what we mean when we say good parenting. You know, what is good parenting? Is good parenting getting the most for your kid, no matter what the costs are to other kids? Or is good parenting about thinking about our society more collectively and trying to find ways to, you know, make it better? So, Maggie, this, like, reminds me, uh, um, I live in Bethesda, Maryland, and it, this is a community that, ha like, at least the schools in Bethesda, both public and private, over the past few years has seen um, an increase in the number of racist and anti-Semitic um, incidents yeah. um, in the schools. And so our school district decided we have to start having conversations about this. And my daughter's high school decided we were going to have a conversation as well. And I went to one of those district, um, uh, like, supported discussions. And the things that I heard during these discussions were crazy. <laughs> um, but more than anything else, like, the thing that, that was incredibly, I mean, I should have known better, um, but the thing that I wasn't anticipating was the ways in which this co this conversation was framed in such a way to um, I don't know to cater to I hate you I hate using the phrase white fragility but um, but like yeah but a sense of like um, I, I guess I'd say like white entitled fragility it's like we don't want to say that you did anything wrong. We don't want to say that if your kids did any of these things, that they were wrong. There was even one woman who was presenting who she was presenting on what a microaggression is. And she said, I mean, for example, a well-intentioned person could say to someone, I think you only got into that college because of affirmative action. And I had to raise my hand <laughs> eventually to say, how is that well-intentioned? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, I love that. Um, yeah, so I mean, so even when this, and then again, thinking about the importance of schools, right, embedded within these communities, even when they're like, okay, I guess we have a problem that we need to tackle, it's it, like that problem is still framed in such a way so as to, you know, make like the potential perpetrators like feel good about themselves. Right, right. Well, I think it's hard. The, the the one problem with that, I I get a similar experience when I discuss economic policies in a Republican room. And it's just people will only listen under those circumstances. Right. Is uh, they like it. I, I you're right. However, as an effective communication strategy, if you want to get these messages through these parents to these parents, I imagine you have to spend forever disarming them. And getting their defenses down. But is it part of it also like how well are you, how well are they listening if you have to do all that kind of work for them? I mean, isn't that part of the problem? I don't know. You, I feel like I have to do that all the time, right? Like not just <laughs> on, like on virtually any matter. I, it's like uh, you almost have to preface somebody by saying, you know, I feel your your research on tiddlywinks is very important, but I'd like to say Monopoly <laughs> is also a good board game. So 
You know what I mean? I just feel like in general, no matter what it is, you almost have to disarm an audience by validating them or else. Yeah. Okay. So I get that, but then there's a, there's another side to it. And, and, you know, and I'll give you this example and Maggie, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you whether or not you saw any of this. So there is like the sort of like, okay, let's frame these things in ways that make everyone look as positive as possible. Right. Um, But then there's also the flip side. I mean, so there was a parent at the very beginning who was like, well, you know, they hear that word in in the music all the time, and I don't know what I'm supposed to tell my children, <laughs> right? And I and I was like, which word, bitch, right? Yeah. Um, and she was like, no, I mean, no, not that word. And I go because you know what? Obviously, you know what to tell your kids when they use the bitch word, the b word, right? You tell them that it's not a good word. So I don't understand what the difference is here when we're talking about the n-word right um so then there's also on the flip side and then and i was like the the people facilitating this conversation were were just like hmm yeah that's a hard one right (laughs) right and and so 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 there's the okay like framing as framing this crowd as a virtuous but also like framing, like if there are any kind of transgressions, like for example, like in thinking too much, like that your privilege is well-earned or that you don't have privilege, mm-hmm. like this sort of like, well, if those other people don't have privilege, that's their own fault. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's, I have a lot of thoughts, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think this, I've been thinking a lot about how to frame this, this the message of my book, at least, um, as I, as I go out into the world and talk to people. Um, and I don't think that the way, you know, I don't think framing this, the way that it sounds like this whole meeting was framing this is, is effective. You know, I think that's just making white people feel good about themselves and feeling like they're, you know, they're not racist. It must be somebody else, you know? And I think that the concept of racial apathy is really powerful here because I think a lot of white people think that, and I certainly have seen this in kids and I'm seeing this with some of my new research on kids in the Trump era. Um, you know, racial apathy is, is this failure to help, right? This failure to even care about people of color or about people who are economically marginalized um but rather like it's not a desire to hurt right it's just this like failure to help or care and i feel like what you're describing is a manifestation of racial apathy of like well i don't really you know it doesn't really affect me or there's nothing i can do about it so i'm not going to worry about it um so i actually don't think that i think framing it the way you frame it is really important and you have to be strategic but I don't think making everyone feel good. This, you ha- if there's no discomfort, then you're not actually talking about it. You know, the the only problem is that uh, my experience, and I I have no experience talking about race, is that uh, people disengage very quickly uh, when they feel they're being blamed. It I my personal experience on on different issues is that it sets up an oppositional dynamic where somebody immediately labels you as part of one of a two sided argument that has no truth or has no winners. And it just becomes an exercise in like standard argumentative stuff. And just as a communication strategy, it can be good to give your audience the opportunity to be one of the good guys, but you're right. It might not create a compulsion to act. I guess that's the line you got to walk. Or it might not create a compulsion to sort of look inward. I mean, well, that uh, that's a good point. It's like uh, I look. It's 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 a it's a difficult thing to do. 
uh, to get people to look in. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, no. So, I mean, I think it's, I think that is a really entertaining discussion. And I, and sort of another way I think that, that Maggie's work is really, um, really relevant is, um, sort of, you know, the, the ways that people need to be felt like they're left off the hook. So for example, um, I gave a talk about my research, which is irrelevant to this discussion, but, um, to, about basically about race and ethnicity, um, at this local congregation in Indiana this church and it was sort of one of these things where like I was talking about Black Lives Matter and everyone in the audience was immediately sort of like oh well I mean this isn't really a big issue it's not a big problem you know why are you even talking about racism anyway et cetera, et cetera. and they had all this sort of weird pushback and I realized the course of this very odd interaction was that they sort of felt that they were sort of doing the work by showing up to a talk about race and then that was where the sort of inward looking stuff was supposed to end. And like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, there's no sort of thoughtful engagement beyond the fact that like, I came to this talk by this professor about racism. And so I, I guess that's why kind of where I'm coming from when I'm kind of pushing back on some of what you what you were saying, Joe. Like, I think it's sort of, mm -hmm. there's a performative kind of element to this. Like, I checked that off the box. I went to a talk about racism, but I don't have to actually think critically about or do anything different. Uh, that's a good point. It's a great point, but I, I don't know how you how to navigate. That. Yeah, no, I think that's the perennial question. I mean, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think when talking to parents, um, and I'm a white woman, so this means something. You know, this means something for, um, in these communities, of course. Mm -hmm. um, I'm able to say things that I don't think I would be able to say if I was black, for example, and not get the same type of pushback. Um, and I just I think that this is an opportunity because parents do care a lot about their children a lot of them clearly um and it's like they, they but they also don't want to raise a little racist kid I mean, that's what mm -hmm. i hear a lot and so they're faced with this situation where they they want me to tell them how to raise their kid in a way where the kid won't be racist but that then requires them to engage um with thinking about their choices or thinking about you know mm -hmm. all of the ways that they uh reinforce the very things that they're trying to reject and so I don't know. I have found it to actually be a great opportunity. And I actually think getting, getting people to talk about raising kids and parenting um, brings out a lot of their racial attitudes in ways that they don't even sometimes realize, you know. Can I ask a question about that, though? Because, I mean, what did they say? What did the parents say a racist kid was? Like, because I guess I think what also is interesting about some of this, about your work is, or just, you know, this kind of, this, these ideas more generally is sort of the idea that sort of to be racist is to be like a bad person or an evil person, right? You know what I mean? Mm. So I was just curious, how did that come out in your field work in terms of what they actually thought that that meant? In terms of the kids or the parents? I mean, in terms of the parents, in terms of sort of not wanting to write, raise a racist kid, like what does that actually mean? Yeah. Well, I think for the ones that identified as anti-racist, I mean, these are people that are very similar to, you know, I mean, a lot of more college professors, I'll just put it that way, right? And so they could give me these textbook definitions of how racism is not just an individual level phenomenon, you know, and they're citing stuff and they're, you know, mm -hmm. um, but I actually think that for many parents, for many of the parents that I've, that I studied and then who I've been speaking with, yeah, I mean, they, they don't want their kids to say to say things that are perceived as, as racist, right? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And I think that there's a lot of concern right now when you see evidence in current events, like there, you know, there's a lot of parents that are after the um, kids in with the Covington High School kids and with the Washington Mall, you know, they're talking about that, um, all the blackface and the yearbooks, um, you know, the, these various like, like current events that are taking place, parents are trying to figure out like, well, how do I, you know, how do I make sure that my kid isn't in the news like that? 
And so I don't know if that's, if their goal is really to raise an anti-racist child or if it's to like, you know, give their kid even, you know, kind of protect their kid in some, in some weird way. You know, one of the thing, one of the things that I've been observing, Maggie, is that, um, I mean, so this, so what is so crazy about your project, right, is the ways in which, like, these parents, uh, and it's unclear to me the extent to which they understand that the very choices that they made um, in terms of how they were going to raise their children would then directly mean that they wouldn't have any con direct contact with very many um, non-white people and also non-affluent people. But yet at the same time, it's like it's almost a part of the privilege itself to be like, well, yeah, but, you know, even without doing that, I can still raise an anti-racist kid. Right. Or I can still I can still raise a child. Right. Who doesn't feel entitled. Right. Like as well as privileged. And so that is so amazing to me. Like that's, I think, one of one of, I think, the very, the very, very interesting things um, um, in your study. And then the second thing is, like, aside from your study, another thing that I've noticed in the wake of the rise of these incidents are the ways in which not only are young people, like as teenagers in particular, seem to already understand, right, that, okay, what I did was wrong and could be interpreted as racist, but if I just say it was a joke, right. then, right. you know, or right. if it was some kind of satire, then people have to leave me alone, right? Um, and I also see parents, right, who are jumping to the defense of their kids and saying, well, you know, Johnny just likes to push the envelope sometimes. Right, right. Um, so I'm wondering, like, what is this, like, sort of like this, uh, this, like, sort of trend in, like, trying to minimize this kind of behavior as either being, like, we didn't know that this was a bad thing or it was just a joke. To what extent is this also an aspect of that privilege? I mean, I think it's directly part of that. And I think it's, it's, you could argue that it's, it's racial apathy, you know, it's this, oh, he didn't, you know, that's not what that is, you know, that kind of making excuses, mm -hmm. basically. Um, you know, it's been interesting. So I'm doing some new research, as I mentioned, interviewing kids right now um, about racism in the era of Trump. And if you think about it, for kids who are in middle school right now, their entire lives have been defined by, you know, President Obama in office. Mm -hmm. And so you know, many of the kids are telling me, and these are kids that are across race and class lines, are telling me that, um, you know, they didn't even realize, you know, the significance of the first black president until now, you know, that this moment yeah. that's really different. And um, it's been, I'm interviewing kids in Mississippi and then also Massachusetts to kind of look at some differences in context and place. Um, but what I have found so interesting is that these kids are, are not, like the kids that in my book, White Kids, were articulating the, the white kids that were in white kids when they were articulating, you know, their racial views. Many of them would draw on, you know, colorblind rhetoric, right? Like, oh, racism doesn't matter anymore. What I'm finding now is that the kids, the white kids in this new project across both of these places, are saying things like, "Yeah, I know that there's racism, or I know that Trump does and says racist things, but I don't really care." Or, like, mm -hmm. or he's kind of racist, but he's not racist. Like, that's one of the quotes. And I, I think of that as, you know, again, what 
you know, Tyrone Foreman talks about is racial apathy, you know, and I think that you can really see with these young people, and I think this gets at what you were just saying, like, you know, you can really see this this sort of mutation of dominant racial ideology. You can see it transpiring, you know, Um, at least that's what I think. Oh, God. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It's so depressing. I have three three children. So to add another sort of depressing part point to this, um, that I also think is really fascinating about your work, Maggie, is, um, you know, so, like, I teach classes, I teach lectures on uh, race and ethnicity, right? And so students generally, not just students, but I think people in general, have this weird idea that, you know, everyone over the age of 75 is super racist, and that as soon as that generation dies off, everyone will sort of get along. And so what I think is really great about your work is showing that actually these things are continually produce and reproduce among really, really young children, even, so. Yeah, and it's, like, it's so interesting how, how I've, I've heard that from my students, too, like, all oh, the old people just need to die off, it's, but, yeah, um, and, you know, there's interesting survey research that sort of looks at this, too, so, um, for, you know, Tyrone and Amanda, they, you know, they have an article that talks about, looks at high school seniors, and, you know, white, white high school seniors, and they find that, yeah, there's an increase in this racial apathy, these, these responding to survey, you know, surveys in ways that suggest that they just don't care, um, you know, and not caring about something is, you know, part of, part of the problem. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think this, this idea of this, this like cohort, you know, these cohorts just need to die off. I think it's a very pervasive way of understanding racism and it doesn't really um, make sense. So, so Maggie, it's, it's uh, this concept of racial apathy is very interesting. How would parents put that into action though, with respect to their own children? Because I, I, it strikes me that it would be a very big ask to ask parents to stop uh, advocating for their children. Not saying that it's an unjust thing. I'm just saying that the pro, you know, for a lot of people, they would be resistant to that idea. Like, what is what specifically would they have to do to get over this racial apathy? Yeah. So this is like you're tapping into like the number one um, question that I get in Q and A. Like every time I give this talk, mm-hmm. I give a talk about my book. Um, and so basically, you know, yeah, maybe it's a hard sell. Maybe it's not, though. Maybe there are other ways to think about things. So, for example, do you want your kid to live in a world with increasing inequality? Do you want your kid to live in a world that has it's unjust and unfair and unequal, right? Do you want, you know, do you want to give your kid, um, what kind of gifts do you want to give your kid, right? So that's one way of thinking about it and sort of reframing it. Um, another thing is thinking about, okay, so when we talk to parents and they say, I want my kid to go to the quote unquote best school. Right. Oftentimes what they mean is the whitest school. And there's all kinds of research that documents this. Right. Um, but, you know, it's like, what about all the data on things like suicide rates and, you know, high rates of drug use and all these other the, the, the rates of, like you know, these kids that are super stressed out, you know, in these quote unquote best. Like, I don't think, like, you hear a lot about safety, for example, from people, oh, I want my kids to go to a safe school. And that's totally racially coded language, first of all. Yeah. Then it's like, you think about this, the options they are choosing, and I, I don't see how those were better places for their kids to go to school, you know, if you, if you sort of unpack what you mean when you say best. And so I think that there's actually ways to, to get parents to think differently about, you know, what it means to, to give your kids a good life. I mean, that's the other thing is many parents will tell me that if they have dreams for their kids, these are dreams of their kids having, being happy and feeling, you know, productive and feeling like they're doing things that they love and all of this. And that just doesn't 
map on necessarily to, you know, try to get your kid into Harvard mm-hmm. or whatever, you know? So I think there are different ways to frame good parenting. Well, and also it seems like there's different ways to frame advocating for what's best for your kids too. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. The one thing I will say is that, you know, a lot of parents ask me, well, what's the first step? What do I need to do? And I think that many white people cannot even have, many white adults cannot even have a conversation with another white adult about racism in America. They don't, you know, they don't have the knowledge, let alone the sort of critical consciousness that would be necessary to raise a kid, you know, or, or, you know, maybe changing these ideas about parenting or, or advocating for kids. And so I think that first step is to, you know, make, you know, to educate yourself and to be, and to develop your own critical consciousness. I mean, I just think that that, that step gets left out that somehow it's just like, Oh, turn to the kids and like change my parenting strategies. Like, no, it's about you. And so, um, you know, I get asked very specific questions. I know a lot about lots of kids um, and their families because everyone wants to tell me about their kids all the time. Um, and I think that you know, different communities have different dynamics at play, even if there are obviously patterns that that are pervasive. And I I don't think that trying to give parents there's no prescription for this, right? There's no easy cheat sheet. People need to develop critical conscious critical consciousness and then, you know, embrace that in their own communities. In my opinion. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to Margaret Hagerman from Mississippi State. Margaret recently published White Kids, Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America with NYU Press. Also, a special thank you to Gene Beeman for uh, guest hosting. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter, at Sochanex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast, Our producer is Lisette Moreno. On behalf of Leslie Hinkson and Gene Beeman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.